Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, guys. I, um, I mentioned this the other day, but just to quickly repeat, we are offering right now a big discount on the 10% Happier app, 40% off your subscription, my colleagues and I spent a ton of time finding the best teachers, scientists, and experts in the world to create really compelling video and audio content to help you reduce your stress, create good habits, get more sleep, boost your mindfulness, improve your relationships, and more. We rarely offer discounts, but this is clearly a tough time when people could use some meditation practice. So if you're interested, go to 10percent.com slash podcast 40 for the discount. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out dot com slash podcast four zero. And remember, if you're a healthcare worker, a teacher, a food delivery person, a grocery store employee, or a warehouse worker, the app is free for you. Just go to 10%.com slash care. All right, let's get to the show this week. Our guest this week is definitely not arguing that the pandemic is a good thing, but she also believes that we shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste, as they sometimes say in politics. This is a wake up call, she says. A chance for us to really take a beat and ask ourselves what actually matters. How do we want to do this life, both individually and as a culture? Her name is Roshi Joan Halifax, Ph.D. She is uh, this is her second appearance on the show. She is a major figure in the in the American Buddhist scene. She's a Buddhist teacher, a Zen priest, an anthropologist, a pioneer in the field of end of life care. She's the founder, abbot, and head teacher at Upaya Institute and Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She was speaking to us from her bedroom there for this podcast. And her motto for this crisis, as you will hear, is strong back, soft front. And she'll explain what that means and much more. Here we go. Joan Halifax. Super. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Dan, where are you? I'm in my wife's closet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to make a comment about that. <laughs> I mean, you're in a safe place. You can make any comment you want. I Well, I am in a safe place, but I have to watch out about my comments. They get broadcast out there, and I feel a little embarrassed sometimes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let me start with a question that may historically pre-crisis was a perfunctory question, but actually now is a very interesting question, which is, uh, how are you? Well, I, I'm actually fine. I was fine pre-crisis and in maybe a race in the middle of this thing. Yeah, you know, I'm feeling very fortunate to be sheltering with 24 people at the Zen Center and having a strong practice and also having the opportunity to cook food for homeless people which is delivered safely. And also the kind of Zoom world, which I was not particularly involved with prior to the crisis, talking to the great vacuum on <laughs> Zoom, it is really a kind of bizarre situation. But I'm getting more comfortable sharing the Dharma to, you know, the Zoom space. So it sounds like you're doing fine, but uh, what are your observations about the state of the world? Oh, that's a small question. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a podcast. You can answer for as long as you'd like. Yeah. 
I'm very interested in what is happening. I will say that uh, I feel like I was born to be in the middle of this mess. Hmm. You know, it's a kind of charnel ground, a global charnel ground. And I also, you know, I'm an anthropologist in a former lifetime. So it's just, for me, an incredible process that we're in where we're reflecting the aspects that have been written about in terms of what is a rite of passage, we're seeing it at a global level. And um, I don't know what the outcome will be. You know, one of the things that Glassman Roshi taught me was to really sit with not knowing. And we're in this experience of radical uncertainty right now. There's just no way that we can predict what the outcome of all this will be. You know, although there were intimations from epidemiologists and others about the possibility of a pandemic, but I think, you know, there's a kind of global oblivion that has been operational for a little bit too long. Suddenly, we've gotten this invisible wake-up call. And it is fascinating, and it is frightening, and it is compounded by the fact that Literally millions of people are in social isolation. And it is, as I said, a, an opportunity for us to look deeply at our lives, um, our lives in relationship to people who are less uh, economically, what could I say, stable, affluent, and also um, to look at the effects of our lives on the environment. So, you know, as I said, Dan, this is like a rite of passage where we're in the first phase of that rite of passage. And rites of passage were described by Arnold van Hennep, who was a Dutch ethnologist who wrote a very important book in the 1920s on rites of passage. And it became the model that anthropologists and mythologists used to actually look at the contours of transformation and transformational processes that individuals as well as cultures go through. And Van Hennep, fascinatingly enough, identified the first phase of a rite of passage as separation. And we're in it. I mean, our experience of social isolation is an absolute perfect condition for us to withdraw from our ordinary lives, our normal lives, to be put into uh, solitude, so to speak, and to uh, not have access to others or to our habitual ways of living and consuming that have been, you know, part of our lives forever. So we're in the, the phase of separation and then Van Hennep describes the second phase, Dan, and that phase is called the threshold experience. And the word, the word threshold shares the same feeling and meaning as the word thrash. Hmm. And I feel like we are globally being thrashed. You know, our economies are being thrashed. The corporate world, not so bad, maybe, that it's being thrashed but also people who live in communities of poverty, material poverty, they are being thrashed. And our racism is becoming much more visible. 
And as well, I think we're at a time where we are, in a certain way, seeing the dissolution of a, uh, I don't know how you could call it exactly, but the dissolution of a world that has been built out of an unjust economy that has had profound environmental implications. You know, I will say, Dan, both in terms of this separation phase that Van Hennep talked about and the threshold phase where, you know, you're in the charnel ground. And I think particularly in relation to um, the experience of professional caregivers, these are people who are in the charnel ground. They're in the experience of, you know, seeing the worst suffering in the world. I think that one of the experiences that I have as a Buddhist practitioner is to um, recognize how important my practice is right now. Hmm. You know, as I'm facing the social isolation, although I'm with 24 other practitioners, and we've actually, Dan, we've been in lockdown since March 9th. Hmm. You know, I saw this was coming down and... I talked with friends of mine who are epidemiologists and clinicians, and it really set my compass to close the center, which we did on the 9th of March. No one in, no one out, because um, the risk was just, I saw, too, too great. So, you know, our place, like many other places, you know, whether it's a small business or a big Buddhist center or a church or a government, we've been working since the 9th of March when we saw what was probably going to happen with a very powerful process of reimagining our institution to meet a world that is coming apart at the seams. So this is what Van Hennep was talking about in the threshold it's experience. It's an experience of being betwixt and between, between two worlds. And in a certain way, we can't draw on the lessons from the past, but we don't want to repeat the past. And also, we can't really see into the future clearly. So we have to be very open, you know, with this spirit of what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. Glassman Roshi, my teacher, Bernie, not knowing, not knowing, you know, really, can we live with radical insecurity? Can we live, uphold ourselves, be open in the midst of radical uncertainty? And that's the practice, because you know, what's interesting to me, Dan, is in a way, it's always like this. You know, we're prediction machines, but guess what? Our machines are not operating right now. And as a result of that, we're being opened to a whole other dimension of our potential to drop into wisdom, into being surprised. And not to, you know, Einstein said it, and so many people have said it, we sure do not want to recreate the past. We don't want to be in the state of mind that created the mess that we're in. We know that the pandemic is not separate from the climate catastrophe. 
And we have to look at what drove the climate catastrophe. And I feel what practice does, it strips you down. It takes you down to a place where data doesn't operate. But what operates, actually, what unfolds, and this is going to sound probably crazy to the people who are listening, but this is what I feel deeply. What really counts right now is love. I feel like what really makes a difference is love. So much there to unpack. Um, you raised a bunch of, you said so many <laughs> things that I want to follow up on, but it feels, I guess, most natural to just go with that last point. Love, it's easy to, for that to fall into cliche. You know, the Beatles, as I've joked before on this podcast, the Beatles said all you need is love, but you also need toilet paper and Purell. So that's not quite right. And yet, obviously, love is extraordinarily powerful. So and I think a, a complex thing to define. So what do you mean when you say it comes down to love? I think it means this quality of care where, yeah, I think Purell is really important. So anybody, student who enters the little place where I live, they use hand sanitizer. We, you know, wash our hands. For me, that's love. Mm. I mean, Good point. you know, toilet paper is love. Maybe less so than Purell. <laughs> well, but you're caring for yourself, so... You're caring you know. for yourself, but you know, it's like those of us who are sheltering here, and by the way, Dan, most of the people who are sheltering here are way young. They're people in their 20s and 30s, which is wonderful. They're, one is from Venezuela, another is from Colombia, the Philippines, uh, Spain, this group of really extraordinary young people and it is, you know, an experience where we realize that taking care of ourselves at a very practical level is taking care of the world. So holding a hard perimeter, not breaking out. One person who breaks out of here and comes back and they're sick, all people become sick. So taking care of ourselves is taking care of the world. Taking care of the world is taking care of ourselves because we are not separate from the world. Right. So, so Purell is fine. Yeah. 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 Pure. <laughs> I had a very similar conversation recently with your Zen, I don't know, colleague, might not be the right word, but the, the Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams yeah. and I were talking about love and, and talking about the idea that it's, she was saying, we kind of need to seize it back from the Hollywoodification of you know, the string music and the and only defining it in terms of the narrow band of romantic love that it is, as you said before, the capacity to care. I mean, Elvis killed love. <laughs> Which song do you blame? Heartbreak Hotel? I Probably that is the nemesis of true love. <laughs> yeah. And then he was followed by Bon Jovi and uh, who also, you know, maybe, sorry for the bad joke, gave love a, a little bit of a bad name. But, you know, yes, I mean, it's not, it's pop music generally, it's pop culture generally. And I think there's something very powerful in just defining it down, but I don't mean that in a negative sense, defining it down to something very practical. You know, it's practical, but there's also, as you say, it's Purell. And it's also social responsibility and environmental responsibility, but also 
those phrases sound like duty. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, this is my duty. D-U-T-Y, not D-O-O-D-Y. That's right. D-U-T-Y, thank you. (laughs) So, you know, it's a kind of... uh, so there's duty on one side of the equation and responsibility, but actually there's a kind of tenderness that love engenders. And the image that I use, Dan, often um, as a way to teach meditation practice is a image that refers to the body, but is about the interrelationship between equanimity and compassion. And uh, it's a somatic image. It is strong back, soft front. So that image is, I think, very interesting right now because strong back refers to that capacity that we have to uphold ourselves in the midst of any conditions that fundamental equanimity, but an equanimity that is not separate from. And I remember once, Dan, Taratuku said, equanimity is to care for all beings equally. And I thought, wow, gosh, that is, that's a really amazing perspective. And it's a hard assignment because our preferential mind is so strong. Can we care about politicians whom we see are many of whom are pretty corrupt and mean-spirited? Can we care for the guy on death row who murdered the little girl after he raped her? Can we rehumanize those whom we have objectified and polarized and see the man on death row who is the murderer and the rapist as also a human being or the politician with whom we have lots of argument. Can we see, wow, the state of mind of that person who is signing into law more and more mean-spirited and destructive laws in relation to the environment or in relation to issues related to race and poverty. But can we say, oh, that state of mind, that is also suffering. And, you know, Dan, I learned that, and I think in our, our last encounter I mentioned this, I worked in the penitentiary of New Mexico as a volunteer for six years. And, you know, with people, well, the men I worked with is all men, and all of them were in maximum security or on death row. People who really had done horrible crimes. But I came to both see their... the truth of what they had done to others, all of them were people who had committed murder and the horror of that of their crimes on one hand and the suffering in relation to others and what the victim had gone through must have been just absolutely terrifying. But I also came to realize, oh, these two are human beings. 
And can I see, as Thich Nhat Hanh so wonderfully said it, he said, you know, this is a wounded Buddha. This is a human. Hmm. The state of mind and often the economic and social circumstances and psychological circumstances that led to a horrible act, that too is suffering. The state of mind that was entered in order to rape or kill, that too is suffering. So that really broke apart my Judeo-Christian perspective of good and evil. And I began to look at things as suffering and not suffering. Well, don't you often hear from Christians, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin? Yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. If, as you said before, if it all comes down to love, how do we get better at this? And what is blocking that capacity? Well, in a way... I think we've been given a, a gift by this virus, by this pandemic. We've been uh, forced to withdraw our habitual ways of being in the world and to actually, and this is, you know, what we say in Zen, you know, is turning the light around. We've been forced to actually look inwardly. It's a half of our life that we have ignored that we have felt to be unimportant, that we've imputed, if we have any sense of it at all, that it's (laughs) woo-woo. But in fact, many of us are hearing from our students and our colleagues, and I who work with healthcare providers all over the world, I'm hearing the same thing. The importance now of looking at how the mind works, how the heart works, what our values are, what is integrity, what is important in our world now. And I think this morning we did Jukai, which is a ceremony of conferring the precepts to those who wish to receive them. And I said to my students who received Jukai, you know, we've taken so much for granted we felt so entitled. The world owes us something. Now um, we have a chance to look deeply of into what it is to actually give back and to discover who we really are, which is not separate from any being or thing, from the man on death row, from the politico in D.C. It's an incredible time for us to look deeply and to also be in touch with the truth of our suffering, the drivenness of our habits, and to open up to the possibility, as I said at the beginning, that this pandemic, which is turning the world upside down, and it looks like it's not going to stop tomorrow, will perhaps give us the opportunity to reshape society in a way that is more just, more loving, more compassionate, and more respectful of all species. Dan, one of the things that I think is so interesting in uh, complex adaptive systems is this view that when there is a breakdown of a system, and we're in it right now, 
If we learn from that breakdown, we can be part of a reorganization process that is at a much higher order than what gave rise to the breakdown in the first place. So there's an incredible opportunity here. And we might be, you know, in the threshold experience longer than any of us ever anticipated. And that is going to be, I think, a very bumpy ride for not thousands, millions of people. And yet, we will learn. Some of us will learn. I hope many of us will learn. So as, as I keep saying, we could be part of the emergence of a more just, sane, and compassionate world. How confident are you that that's because the opposite is also possible, too. We could it could soul thing could devolve into unbridled fear and greed and violence and or all manner of venality. How confident are you that the outcome that you are clearly rooting for will come to pass? Well, I'm a hopeful person, but I'm not optimistic. <laughs> so, What's the difference? The difference is an optimist doesn't really have, because they think everything's going to turn out okay, so you don't have to do anything. Hmm. And it's the same with a pessimist. It's all going to go to hell, so you don't have to do anything. But a hopeful person is a person that sees the truth of uncertainty and the possibility that anything could happen, including the best. Why I closed Upaya Zen Center to the general public on the 9th, it was, I was hopeful, not pessimistic. <laughs> we will find a way through this. And it really has to do, I think, with, again, going back to what we said earlier, having a strong back on one side, groundedness, equanimity, uh, care, the capacity to uphold ourselves in the midst of these really completely odd and, for many of us, terrifying conditions where, you know, you see a person coming towards you without a mask and is that person going to infect you? Or a staff member whose daughter was hospitalized had to take an airplane from Albuquerque to Chicago and they're afraid to get on an airplane. They did, but they're completely terrified of getting on a plane. Or someone who's a good friend of mine had to go to the hospital last week and you're afraid to touch the door of the emergency room. You know, we're living in a world, I believe, that is riven with fear and with grief. And it's a time for us to actually turn toward the truth of these responses to the world as it's coming apart at the seams and to see what can I learn? How do I begin to develop the moral character to meet the call of this era that we're in? And it takes a lot of grit and also a lot of grace. But I feel optimistic in one way, but more than optimistic, I feel hopeful. I want to work for, and which is why we're interacting now, for a world that is more loving. 
This turning toward attitude that you described earlier, you described the current situation as a gift. And I'm just wondering, is that an is it an equally bestowed gift? In other words, can I have the attitude of turning toward and, and learning in the current atmosphere if I have to go work in a hospital or on a subway right. system or on a bus or I've just lost my job and I've I have kids and I don't know how to feed them? Can I have that attitude in those circumstances? For me, there's a yes and a no. Circumstances have been created in certain lives where um, we're in a position of privilege. And that privilege is not just privilege in the sense of being, you know, wealthy or white or powerful. We've found ourselves in conditions of safety. This also includes some of the high altitude people who are very close with me in Nepal who live in material poverty but have, you know, great spiritual richness and who have so far their situation has uh, not devolved. So it's not just communities of poverty as we know in the West and also in the East, but there are whole communities that are quite isolated who uh, are not facing what communities of poverty in this country or communities of race in this country are facing. What can we do for others when we experience the good fortune of being able to shelter safely and to have access to food? And I feel like this is one way. We can send our voice in the world. But it's also small acts. It's the Purell. It's also intimate acts, cooking food for the homeless, creating cards for old people who are in isolation. Um, the kinds of things that our community is doing. We need to use, I believe, our resources to, for example, really push on voter registration, to push on education right now. And this is part of it, your interviews with people. I mean, I look at these as they're bright, they're deep, they're fun, but they're also deeply instructive. Their education, they're giving people ballast to meet the world and in a way where strong back, soft front, in other words, our capacity to be open to the truth of suffering, not to bubbleize ourselves, which includes addictions, engaging in addictive behaviors, but to stay in touch with what is going on to the greatest extent that we are able with people who are unsheltered with clinicians on the front lines in New York, with people who are working with sex trafficking, humanitarian organizations, environmentalists, you know, staying in touch with the deep good pulses in the world and doing what you can on the micro level, but also if you have the capacity on the macro level, as you do, Dan, through your, your broadcasts, to reach as many people as possible. So, but if I'm hearing you correctly, the injunction here is if you're lucky, like I am, and you are, don't let this crisis go to waste. Make the most of this pandemic to explore inwardly and be generous outwardly. If, however, you are somebody who 
doesn't have that luxury because you're acute existential risk, then maybe the advice would be different. I think that's very true. But, you know, I just want to say something else, Dan. Even people who are at high risk at the functional level, that is people of color, uh, people who live in uh, communities of poverty, people who live in condensed urban areas, clinicians who are working on the front lines, medical examiners, morticians, you know, these are all people who experience high vulnerability at this time. So I often think, Dan, of Nelson Mandela. And I remember I was moderating a panel where Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama were interacting. And um, Archbishop Tutu said, before Nelson went to prison, he lacked empathy. And then when he was released from prison, who was at his table during his, uh, you know, inauguration and the big dinner? His prison guard, the main prison guard. So, you know, how do we, instead of engendering despair through all the strata of our society, how do we actually engender hope and possibility Let's take another person in this regard, and that's Malala. She stood in her principles, which her principles, she was completely dedicated to the education of girls. She took a bullet in the head for it. And that could dampen one's enthusiasm for being out there. But instead, what did she do? She rose out of brain damage and near death and is a voice for love and justice for girls and women in the world today. So, you know, we have the potential for a lot of lemonade right now. (laughs) (laughs) Heather uh, McTeer-Tony, who was the youngest and the first Afro-American mayor of Greenville, Mississippi, you know, really putting her world into focus around communities of poverty and race, of how to actually bootstrap into greater health. So, you know, I think what we want to see are not just the rotten role models, which we, we're, we're overdosed with, but um, also to reflect on those men and women who have overcome incredible odds and who have turned toward the world in great service. More 10% Happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online 
Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Let me go back to something that I was trying to bring up earlier, and because I, I think there's a, potentially a lot here. So if you're saying to all of us in whatever situation we find ourselves, now is the time to, you know, call on our better angels in many ways and to call on our capacity to care, i.e. love, what stands in the way of that? Why do we so often not go in that direction? Why do we have Nelson Mandela to celebrate in in many ways because he is uh, showing us a different way than we normally do things? I think that's a great question. And of course, that's a question that's right at the heart of Buddhism. You know, it's the recognition of the truth of suffering, but also the source of suffering. And, you know, one person talked about it in terms of defending and defining the self. We put so much energy into our separate self-identity. And that is driven in part by greed, by desire, by grasping, which of course is fear-based. And by, as well, hatred, by anger, which is also fear-based. And by ignorance. And unless we're able to see the patterns that are driving our subjectivity into a tighter and tighter grip, I don't think that we will be able to actually foster or nourish a world that, I keep using the words, just, sane, and compassionate. It really means facing the truth of this illusion of a separate self. And I remember Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a beautiful book called uh, The Sun, My Heart. And in it, he talked about our practice in the best of circumstances allows us to realize the truth of interconnectedness, the truth of interdependence, and the truth of interpenetration. That we're, how can we say we're separate from the very atmosphere that we breathe? And yet we're throwing junk into it, you know, moment after moment. Suddenly you realize the atmosphere I breathe and I am not separate. We are not separate from each other. I think that's the thing also Aldo Leopold, who was the person who really brought ecology and deep ecology into the awareness of people in the 19. 60s and 70s, you know, when he shot the wolf, wolves like bad wolf, he shot the wolf and then he went up to the wolf that he had shot and saw that as as the wolf was dying, he looked into the wolf's eyes and he realized, oh, 
this is a sacred being. And it, he just it turned on a dime. He just shifted out of looking at the natural world as something dangerous into understanding that we are part of that natural world. How do we do this? <laughs> it sounds great. It sounds incredibly important. And I'm, uh, as a as a Buddhist, I am on your side. But it might be worth talking a little bit about how to use this time in for many of us in lockdown and for those less fortunate who are more engaged to use uh, our more limited time to tap into this potential to get over this harmful illusion that we're somehow separate from everything else. You know, Dan, I think we've been given the opportunity right now. Certainly the virus and this pandemic have pointed out how powerful interconnectedness operates in the world today. I mean, it's just wild. I looked at the mail. I went down. I saw there were some packages. And I actually had this moment. I wonder how many hands touched these packages unseen hands, unknown hands, and were those hands thick, hands that carried the virus? I just looked at that moment of hesitation. I thought, you know, I was sort of threading my own analysis back to, you know, the sender, so to speak. And what happens in deep practice is that one has this kind of breakdown of the sense of self and other. And one can, but it's not always available, but one can have the realization of you know, radical non-separateness. And that is one of the really important realizations in Buddhism. It's the realization that um, I am not separate from any being or thing. And every time there's a contraction inside of me, that contraction is a signal that, like the contraction I had when I was looking at the mail, where fear is actually priming that contraction. And can I actually respect the possibility that that package might be harmful? And can I relate to that package in a way that is skillful and caring? And not let fear turn me away from opening up, quotes, the package, the whole package. So, you know, that's why practice, Dan, meditation practice, whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a non, but it is about breaking down the sense of self and other and this realization of radical interconnectedness. So that's one of the things I think another thing that is really up for us, Dan, is the another core piece that the Buddha taught and that is also part of many other spiritual and religious traditions is the understanding that everything is characterized by impermanence. Everything. The very thought I'm having now the conditions in the world. And you realize, you know, when you're practicing, any attempt at creating security, so to speak, 
is actually engendering suffering. And so you're in this kind of flow of uncertainty, radical uncertainty, of change, of impermanence. And one of the things that does, I think, and this really comes from uh, my work with dying people, which has been part of my life since 1970, it is this, it's this experience of actually caring for, respecting, treasuring, appreciating what this present moment is. Even if the present moment is really tough, really terrible. As one clinician said to me who's working on the front lines, I am learning so much. So instead of being bitter and casting aside the lesson, it's actually turning toward the difficulty with humility and saying, wow, I am learning so much from this mess. So I think that that is really uh, one of the gifts of coming into relationship with the truth of impermanence. And, you know, I was supposed to go to Japan in April or late March and April, Dan, and I love teaching in Japan in the spring because, you know, all the trees are just glorious in their blossoming and, you know, families are gathered under the trees and lots of sake, not for me, but for others. <laughs> and, you know, it's like big picnic time and everything. So one of the things, uh, why this is such an important season in Japan is that it's the realization that everything is transient. Those blossoms are going to fall. They're beautiful, but they're also they're going to go away. And the Japanese have a beautiful term, mono non aware. And that term was translated, I think, in a very good way by the poet Robert Bly. He translated that as the slender sadness. Hmm. So, you know, it's the function of grief also that operates in a positive way in our lives, not in just a negative way. That what grief teaches us, and a student said to me last month, uh, she said, grief is love that has nowhere to go. And I believe that one of the deep lessons that grief teaches us is how much we love how much we love. And the Japanese in their monononawari moment, uh, in the, the kind of climax of spring, it is uh, both the beauty and the sadness. Mm -hmm. As we stand in the middle of this mess where people of color are not safe, where there's increasing radicalization uh, from more fundamentalist groups, where the respect for human life and our environment seems to be decreasing every day. Mono nonawari, it is impermanent. And at the same time, we have so much to learn now. Because just as you're sitting in your wife's closet, so to speak, <laughs> our racism, our classism, our ageism, our sexism is out of the closet. And this being so visible at this time, 
I believe is a call, a revolutionary call in the best sense of the word, to address the truth of suffering at the individual level and also in terms of society and our economic system as well. Let me say something that is probably going to be unpopular and make people not like me, but I'm going to say it anyway because it happens to be true. I do notice as somebody who I've copped to this many times, very lucky, raised in upper middle class milieu, suburban Boston, parents are doctors, had everything handed to me, didn't have to worry about paying for college, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the advantages that are conferred upon somebody who's, you know, straight white male. When I hear we can remake the world, part of me is very excited about that because I see a lot of injustice and I don't like it at all. A part of me feels a little bit of threat. I hear you. You should. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be like it was. I mean, I think the manifestations of patriarchy, you know, right now it's as though the shadow, the worst aspects of patriarchy right in our face. And you know, what you're also seeing is that some of the countries that are doing the best are countries that are led by women. And I think I wouldn't want to be a white guy today, to be perfectly frank. You know, I feel like um, white men, particularly privileged white men, are now stigmatized as well in a way they should be. And so, you know, if you're in that uh, particular role in this incarnation, you get to work twice as hard <laughs> to rectify what patriarchy has wrought. You know, there are a couple levels to this. So the one level is, as we've been discussing, that, you know, if the world's going to be remade, it's, it's possible that people who've had a lot disproportionate amount handed to them, I put myself in that category, that that situation will not be perpetuated anymore. The other is, even on a sort of more crass level, that I just want this to be over. And, you know, I just <laughs> I, I just want to stop wearing the mask every time I leave. And so, yes, we're in this betwixt and between that you referenced before. That really landed for me because, yes, I want the world to be more just. And I'm actually on some levels pretty comfortable with some of the, the aforementioned threat to me. It's more just that I don't like living in the uncertainty so much. And I, I just want to stop my prediction that uh, you called us prediction machines. I'm fritzing out over here because I keep trying to <laughs> cast forward into the future and I and I can't do it. What a blessing. What a blessing. You know, it's like you've been forced to the mat. I think all of us have been forced to the mat to greater or lesser degrees, your mat and my mat just happens to be a nicer mat than many people are actually forced to at this time. You know, I got an email today from my wonderful Sirdar friend in Nepal. You know, China's the border with China is closed on the north. The border with India is closed on the south. They're in a food desert right now. They're feeding people you know, out of their back doors. There's starvation now in Nepal. So that's being forced to the mat. And it is tough. But the other side of it is this communication that I received this morning 
was so moving because um, the neighborhood in which Prem lives um, has mobilized, has bonded together, has shared its rice, shared its lentils, so it can be equally divided among all families. Hmm. So, you know, you just see these small acts of goodness and you realize, oh, we have much that we can share from our privilege and we must share at an individual level. And part of it has to do with rebuilding our neighborhoods. You know, I I have to say, so like a number of my friends who are Buddhist teachers, you know, we travel a lot and so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm not at my center 365 days a year. Suddenly I'm in lockdown at my center but I, I'm fortunate enough to be able, unlike New Yorkers, I don't have to stay in my apartment. I can walk out and walk the road and walk up into the forest. And for the first time, and I've lived here 30 years, I'm meeting neighbors that whose houses are, you know, one or two houses away from Upaya, where we're going, hi, you, yeah, the Zen Center, you and, you know, we're making that kind of special connection. I love it. Because we're beginning to appreciate our connections in a way that is really fresh. You know, I live in an apartment building in Manhattan, and I, that we're seeing a lot of that here, too. And I've gotten to, I've talked about this on the show before, but we have an 85-year-old neighbor who, who I see her every day now. I mean, we sometimes eat dinner together in the hallway, or every night we just go out there and hang out. And so that I really like. There are aspects of this pandemic that are really nice. Let me just go back to white men for a second. Oh, sorry. Did you want to say well, something? No, wait. I just, I want to actually go back to the thing is you just want to get this over. Okay, good. Yes, let's go there. Why? As much as I intellectually can acknowledge the unbelievable flaws of the world that existed pre-March, at least I knew it. At least I had it was terra firma for me. And again, I say this is a guy who, you know, much of our world was created by people who look like me. And so therefore I'm reaping the, the rewards, even though I didn't, you know, choose the womb I came out of. So, of course, you have to take my comments with that large grain of salt. But I think it's just I don't feel comfortable in the uncertainty. So what is that telling you? I'm curious. Well, I mean, I now have the benefit of a little bit over a decade of meditation. And so when I feel that discomfort, I some muscle memory kicks in and I investigate it. And there are very interesting things to be learned when you investigate the discomfort and about the human situation, about how you're living your life moment to moment, about the larger culture. And so I feel very lucky that I can see that discomfort arise and then get curious about it rather than just acting on it blindly. So what's your big takeaway? I'm curious. Oh, I don't have any idea what the hell I'm talking about. So (laughs) you're asking the wrong guy. Um, But what was my big takeaway? I mean, there are so many, but on the uncertainty thing, I'll just state a bunch of very obvious things. We're not wired for uncertainty, which is a design flaw because we're living in a world that is infused with it. You know, uh, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, has a little expression that he uses, which is anything can happen at any time. I think that's very true, but we don't like that. And so now we're really just 
being forced to see what has always been true, but we've papered over it with the world that we all knew pre-March. So, so what's the gift there? What's the takeaway? What's the piece that's really important for you? Everything you just said, you know, lean into it, investigate with openness. And when you can, when you see, when you see how uncomfortable that is, you can see that everybody else is feeling that same discomfort and that you have an opportunity to be useful. And by the way, in that being useful, which we might call love, there is <laughs> a kind of relief from the suffering, a, a, a different stance in the face of all of the groundlessness. Then if you come out of that piece of wisdom, which is, you know, it's like a continent. It's not a little island. I mean, it's a really important uh, landscape. And go back to the question that you were pointing to, which has to do with patriarchy. Your identity is, you know, an affluent, privileged white male. And you're in that body and you don't want to carry the stigma to the grave, so to speak. What do you feel the imperative is for you? What's important right now to shift that? To shift that as a white man? Yeah. I'm really curious about that. I think we got to be looking for opportunities. Everybody has to be looking for opportunities, as you've said, to exercise the love muscle. And as I believe, was it JFK, who's also a white man, who said something like, to people who've been given so much, much is expected. So the more you have to give, the more you should be giving. Mm. Yeah. I mean, how could that wisdom be transmitted to a culture that is so materialistic and attached to identity? Well, you've just asked the question that has like, defined my career for the last little while. I don't know that you, my instinct, but I am very open to discussing this, has, my instinct has been to not go for the full Monty right away because it's a lot <laughs> to swallow, but to really go the 10% happier route. Hey, look, there's this practice that can make you calmer, more focused, less yanked around by your emotions, and uh, there's science that says it's good for you, and let that be the easy way in. And then, of course, as we, as you and I both know as people, and this is way more true for you than for me, as people who have been practicing for a while, the motivation for practice changes the deeper you go. And that can be for people who are just doing five, ten minutes a day. Over, over time, you can see some really important things. You can see that it feels good when you do something nice for people, and you might want to double down on that as opposed to spending all of your time uh, worrying about whatever, your, you know, your Instagram follower count. So in a way, your nervous breakdown mirrors globally a kind of nervous breakdown that's happening uh, across the world. You're talking about my panic attack on TV. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think we're in a certain way in a kind of global panic attack. Huh. But if you look at this, Dan, in terms of your life, not saying that your life is the sort of the contour that you followed can be applied universally, but thinking about, you know, what were the lessons that you learned in the experience, which was sort of strange, uh, terrifying, humiliating, and set you back in a serious way. What did you learn? I mean, would you have learned those lessons had you not had that experience? I doubt it. 
So, oh. yeah, I doubt it. So, hence the initiation that you talked about at the beginning. The, 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 the testing rite of passage. Yeah, the rite of passage. There you are. Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the things is to understand that rites of passage, Dan, happen in a context that are deemed sacred. So, you know, this is sort of out of the box. This is not the view is not necessarily that this is a holy time, a sacred time globally. And maybe your own situation at the time it was happening, the context was hyper-secular, to say the least. Mm -hmm. But it turned you, I think, toward the sacred or toward the spiritual, not the sappy spiritual. But I'd like to just hear a little bit more from you about your view of how that experience moved your dial toward a kind of secular spirituality. Yeah, well, although I'm not sure how secular it is, given that I consider myself a Buddhist, but I guess a Buddhist who doesn't, a Buddhist in the spirit in which the historical Buddha described, you know, said, uh, don't believe anything without proof. I think it was a stepwise progression to answer your question. I think what happened was the first insight for me was that we have an inner voice, this nonstop nattering dialogue that when we don't see, it owns us. And that was a huge piece of news to me because that was what allowed me, that inner voice was what allowed me to go off, cover wars without thinking about the consequences and then to come home and get depressed and not know it and then to very unwisely start using a bunch of cocaine and that led to the panic attack. So seeing that we had that we have this inner voice, having that pointed out to me and that meditation is a kind of antidote where you can wake up systematically to the powerful emotions, random thoughts, unhelpful urges that are coursing through your consciousness. And once you see them, you don't have to be owned by them. That was the first big thing for me. And then I think more recently, getting interested in love. Again, as you described it before, as our evolutionarily wired capacity to care, core part of being a human, and seeing that that is another skill that can be developed just the way mindfulness, you know, self-awareness can be developed, and then twinning those two in a nice upward spiral. Yeah, I remember in the early 1970s, Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein had just started the Insight Meditation Society. And my husband then, I had, I've had one husband, Stanislav Groff and I went to IMS to meet them and hang out with them. And Sharon and I really connected. I just, I just loved her and still do. And after, you know, more than 50 years of friendship or 50 years of friendship. And, you know, I was a kind of hard ass Zen person. Mm And I said to Sharon, well, what practice do you do? And she proceeded to describe the Brahma Viharas, the boundless abodes of, you know, saying these phrases related to the cultivation of loving kindness, the cultivation of compassion, of sympathetic joy and equanimity. Honestly, Dan, I thought I would have a diabet fall into a diabetic coma. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God, you got to be kidding. That is so sappy. And um, she was so, you know, Sharon is in her way, totally imperturbable. She just 
lives in this kind of field of humor and kindness and goodness and wisdom. And she looked at me with those big round eyes and she said, you ought to do it. It will make a difference in your life. And I thought, oh my God, in a gazillion years, I wouldn't do this. Oh my God. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to try it out. And it has been, I have to say, the most important practice that I have done of the different wonderful approaches to meditation that exist in Buddhism. But the cultivation of an unselfish motivation, every time the little self wants to grasp, I can feel it in my body. I feel the contraction. And then I, I think of Sharon, you know, 50 years ago, saying, this will change your life. And I just begin to shift my feeling toward myself and open up uh, toward the, lo- the world with more kindness. May loving kindness support you. May I offer my care and presence even though it may be met by gratitude, indifference, anger, or anguish. May I offer love, knowing I cannot control the course of life, suffering, and death, and so forth. So, yeah, this beautiful process of beginning to turn away from, again, defending and defining the self to understand that we're in this intersubjective reality and in an experience of radical inclusivity that we can't separate ourselves from any being or thing at a fundamental level and that compassion these practices actually open up they they reorganize our nervous system our neural networks toward the good and i just Thanks, Sharon. Always. <laughs> me too. She opened that door for me. Yeah, she has popularized these practices in many ways. And then wait, if she hadn't done that, I, I wouldn't be doing it for sure. Let me just ask one last question, going back to white men for a second. So we've been talking about generating compassion and warmth. Can you feel that for white men, notwithstanding the amount of damage uh, people who look like me have done? Listen, I told you I worked in a maximum security prison <laughs> as a volunteer with men on death row, and I felt it toward murderers. You know, I feel it toward our president. Yeah, that's not, you know, one of the things, again, going back to what Tara Tulku said one time in a talk, caring for all beings equally, separating the human from what the human has uh, foisted on another in terms of suffering. But to realize, you know, as I looked at Terry Clark, who was the first man to be put to death in New Mexico after 40 years for raping and killing a little girl, you know, I saw the truth of his delusion, his suffering, his self-hatred, and also there's a human being in there. And this practice really opens up what John Paul Lederach has called this experience of rehumanization. But you talked about the stigma that is now attaching to white men. And I, if I, if memory serves, there was some approval on your end for that stigma. But is that really fair, given that, you know, again, as I said before, white men didn't choose to be white men? Well, just as we as racists 
because our unconscious biases are really strong and they do fall on racial lines. Gender is the same way. And I think to stigmatize all white males is uh, no better than to stigmatize all people of color or all politicians. I think we really have to look at the human being, each individual, hmm. in their totality, and not throw them into just the bin of patriarchy. <laughs> Final question for me. I used this phrase before early on in the discussion about sort of don't let this crisis go to waste. I think a lot of us feel the urge to be productive, to get things done, to bake soda bread, to whatever, during the course of this pandemic. But what I heard from you is maybe do more nothing. We've, in a way, been commanded to stop. And this is, you know, from the Buddhist perspective, what is called cessation. There is physical stopping, and but there's also mental stopping. And can we, for example, serve others, do, you know, engage in acts of compassion, which um, have a functional aspect, which is to, you know, serve others, but also do it from a perspective of cessation, from a perspective of stopping. And I think that's what's really important. Now we're forced to physically stop and to turn the light around and to begin not to live so externally but to look at, you know, what our life is really about, which is not to create more suffering, but in fact to engender greater good. And, you know, in the model that I was speaking about when we began the interview, Dan, of the rite of passage, remember I talked about the first is separation, the being separated from uh, the conditions that are familiar to us and that actually are habitual. The second phase, the threshold or the liminal state. The third phase is of the return. You know, what are we going to take from what we have learned during this time in relation to our how our economy operates, what our responsibility is in relation to the environment, to enhancing gender parity, to end the abuse of children, to address deeply issues that are related to race and poverty. So what are we going to bring forward to end the structural violence that has actually been part of the equation that's given rise to this pandemic? And, you know, the corporate world is on its knees. I know they're getting a lot of benefits from our government, but those will not last. The airlines are on their knees. The banks are on their knees. The food production, the farms, you know, the people who are going to be harvesting the strawberries, the lettuce, you know, are we going to let them into this country? We're in a huge phase shift. And what we bring forward into this next phase, it's the return. How do we actually bring the gift that is boon bestowing? How do we bring grace back, kindness back, justice back into our world? And I think that this is, in a way, whether we're at the raw end of suffering uh, during this pandemic, which some of the people that I'm deeply in touch with are, you know, they're the doctors and nurses working in New York City, in New Jersey. Just, you know, their stories are horrifying 
Some of them are taking their lives. Many of them are hitting the rawest kind of futility. Can we wake up in the midst of these conditions and commit to values that won't be a repeat of our past? Roshi Joan, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. I've been raving. (laughs) But I just feel so interested and also so dedicated to what is ahead of us and being a part of, along with you and Sharon, Joseph and others, a group of individuals who, and, and my friend Jane Fonda and Christiana Figueres and the uh, geographer and environmental scientist Diana Liverman and Heather McTeer, Tony, these incredible uh, people who are working at the front lines in deep, deep ways to bring the gift forward. And you're part of that. Don't worry about being a guy. (laughs) We love you. (laughs) I love you back. Big thanks, Joan. Really appreciate her taking the time to talk to us. Also want to thank the team that uh, puts this show together every week. Samuel Johns is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton. And uh, Anya Shashik of Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. Also want to thank uh, the folks at 10% who do a ton of work on this show. Uh, Ben Rubin, uh, Nate Toby, Jen Poyant, uh, Liz Levin. Also a big thank you to ABC folks, including Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus drop. If you like 10% Happier... I hope you do. Uh, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.